Blog Talk Radio. I'm author Sherry Knowlton, and this is the sixth and final in a series of podcasts I've done uh, focused on both my new book, Dead on the Delta, and its Botswana, Africa setting. Today's episode is Africa Anecdotes, Writing What You Know. With me is my husband, Mike Knowlton. Uh, Together, we're going to share a few of our memories from the seven trips we've taken to African countries on safari. Welcome, Mike. Glad to be here. (laughs) Before we begin our stories, um, I'd like to do a brief reminder about the background for this limited podcast series. Um, In celebration of the fifth book in the Alexa Williams Suspense series, which is Dead on the Delta, I decided to do this adventure podcast uh, series, and uh, it talks about my book, yes, but more broadly, um, the series has been focusing on the Botswana setting for the book and some of the themes that play a role in the novel. Dead on the Delta takes readers on a hair-raising journey to Botswana. The main character, kick-ass lawyer Alexa Williams, is spending four months conducting lion research in the African bush with her boyfriend, Reese. She's looking forward to witnessing the elemental life-and-death struggle of the wild, but never imagines that she will become one of the hunted on the remote Okavanga Delta. Now, one of the most famous pieces of advice to time and time again is uh, write what you know. Although I'm hardly an expert on the African continent, I have been on safari to Africa multiple times. Uh, So I knew enough that I wanted to base Dead in the Delta in Africa, and a four-week research trip in Botswana and southern Africa helped fill in the details that I needed for the book. Uh, Also, various incidents from past African safaris made their way into Dead on the Delta. Now, I'm not going to tell you which. You have to read the book. But uh, just to give you a flavor of some of those, today I invited Mike to join me so that we could share a few of our own stories and anecdotes uh, from our time in Africa. Now, Mike and I uh, have been together for nearly 50 years, and we've traveled all over the United States and and the globe. He worked in industry as a quality engineer, but we've both been mostly retired for quite a few years, which allows us quite a lot of time to travel. And I'm always happy to talk about our uh, African safaris. They're one of my favorite trips. We've been to over 40 countries around the world, and ultimately when people ask us, what's your favorite place of those 40 countries, I always come back to Africa. Tell everybody if they're going to do one thing in their life, they should take a safari in Africa. So, uh, we're 
explaining these anecdotes um, because they were unusual, um, something that was particularly frightening or interesting. But bottom line, let us assure you, um, as Mike said, we, we've traveled a lot, and we've traveled on seven safaris to seven different African countries without serious injury or lasting harm. So don't let these stories deter you from a trip of your own to Africa. Um, one of the things we want to talk about is how close you can actually get to wild animals in Africa while, when you're on safari. And these are in the national parks, not, of course, um, in the cities or, or small towns. But one of the first rules that you learn when you're out on safari is that you are in the wild animals' territory, so don't just wander around on your own. And uh, having said that, the main thing is when you're at your camps at night, you stay in your tents at night. You don't wander around. Most tenant camps insist that someone from a camp staff walk you to and from your tent after dark. When you're out on game drives in the vehicles during the day, the animals see the entire vehicle as one entity, and it's something they're very familiar with. They don't see you as a person. They just see the vehicle. They're habituated with this environment since birth. And so just as an example, um, we've been able to get very near uh, big cats. Okay. One day uh, we are on a, we are a safari in Botswana at a Sabuti camp, and we came upon a leopard, a very big leopard, and we were following it around in our land cruiser, okay? Now, this was a, on an evening drive, and the leopard was just starting to wander around on his getting ready for his evening hunt. You could tell he was looking around, and he was, she was just hunting, okay? Okay, she finally uh, climbed into a tree, and she was just a few yards away from us. And I was getting pictures the whole time, but the tree that she decided to climb was not a very big tree. It was only about maybe four inches in diameter, and it was laying down on a about a 45-degree angle, kind of like a seesaw, <laughs> if you can get the picture of that. So we pulled up to the low end of the seesaw with uh, Sherry on the one side of the vehicle closest to that you know, end of the tree. So we were there, and we got some, some very, very good close-up photos of that, of that animal. Um, another time in Botswana, a different camp, um, we followed an, another leopard uh, and her toddler cub. He was really cute, just really adorable. And once again, we spent nearly an hour watching her train the cub how to hunt, and she did it through mock play. Um, and a couple times he even, like, ran under our vehicle um, as he was doing his little mock prowling around. Uh, and then after she did her lesson and they played, they climbed up a very, very tall tree uh, and found a, a place to rest together on the same branch. Okay, and another morning, uh, Sherry and I were in the Kalahari Desert, and it was an early morning drive, and off to the left in the high golden grasses 
we saw some uh, cheetahs. We weren't sure how many, but the driver pulled off into the grasses, and lo and behold, there were four, and they appeared to be uh, brothers, and they were obviously on the prowl hunting something. But when we pulled up, we caught their attention and kind of disrupted their hunting, and we became their focus. We were very, very close to them, and uh, we were able to get some great shots of them with the golden grass around them. Very hard to describe, but it was absolutely just gorgeous. And this happened to be our first safari in uh, Botswana, so it was very impressionable, and we got some very, very good pictures of these four brothers in the high grass. <laughs> Uh, we've also been other places. I, I, Tanzania is, is one that in the Serengeti that comes to mind where we've been so close to lions that you could actually reach your hand out um, of the vehicle and touch them. Now, I will make uh, a public service announcement here, a warning, do not touch the lions, do not, even though they're close. Uh, but uh, that's how close you can get to them. Um, we had, uh, moving on from big cats, uh, just another example of, of close-ups to animals. Um, we once in Zimbabwe uh, spent a few hours in a blind, which is, uh, in this case, was a big structure uh, of really just piled wood and branches, but uh, it was next to a pond. Uh, and the elephants came to drink at the pond, and we were hidden by the blind. And so we were so close to them, uh, but we didn't disturb them at all. Once again, some great photographs. Okay, these animals in the wild can be dangerous and unpredictable. Our closest call came one morning when we were in a flat-bottom boat on the Okavanga Delta. We were staying at the, a camp called Kajira. Okay, It was just the two of us and our guide, and we are just cruising very slowly up and down these narrow channels that were lined with papyruses, which are sometimes 10, 12 feet tall. And so you're just going down this small channel, and uh, we were looking for you know, birds and other wildlife. We came to the end of the uh, channel, and it opened up into like a lagoon that was on our left-hand side, and the channel continued on our right. And when we uh, pulled into that lagoon, you could see a hippo up in front of us, a lone hippo. And so he was in the water, and all you could see was his head, okay? And he started swimming towards us, and then he disappeared underneath the water, and we didn't see him. Okay, and we knew that he was down on the bottom, walking along the bottom, not knowing where he was, but they, suddenly he came up out of the water and he was coming towards us, charging us. He wasn't just looking at us. He was obviously coming towards us. <laughs> exactly. Not a very happy hippo, okay? Okay, alarmed, our guide decided to steer the boat into the lagoon to the left-hand side, heading towards a uh, small island. Uh, and so, you know, we've got this really angry hippo. Uh, the the guide's starting to look pretty nervous. Uh, and when he we reached the side of the island where he sort of, you know, the boat's still in the water, but he's right next to the island. Um, and he told us he was trying to take away um, the water that the hippo could get under us. 
Um, but if the hippo did get under us, he said, see that palm tree on the island? You should run for it um, and see if you can climb it. Uh, now, hippos run, oh, something like 30 miles an hour, I think. I believe it. <laughs> so I knew I wasn't, you know, if it was me or the hippo, the hippo was going to, like, run me down. So I'm there worried. Oh, my God, I'm, we're going to die. Meanwhile, Mike is at the far end of the boat where the um, hippo continues to charge us, taking great pictures of this beast coming out of, up out of the water charging us. Uh, in fact, uh, on this podcast, on the, uh, there's a picture of that hippo that he took that day. And that picture, he was literally might have been 10 feet away from the bow of the boat where I sat on the front of that boat, okay? But like uh, Sherry said, he literally he backed us across this lagoon to where we were at the edge of the water, and eventually he would go on, he eventually he went under the water and he backed off a little bit, and he backed up enough that our guide decided that he thought he had, a, he had enough room or we had enough uh, a chance that we could get around and out of the danger. So he turned on the motor of the boat and quickly went around the hippo. And the hippo, we turned around, we could see that he was turning around and chasing us, but we had a motor and we outran him. <laughs> now, th this behavior, we, we learned, um, it was what they call rogue hippos, and um, certain males are kicked out of the hippos' pods. Uh, hippos are creatures that like to live um, in families, um, and when they're kicked out and they live on their own, they become, as we learned, very, very angry. Um, our guide had actually intended to return to camp through the same channel, uh, and he decided that he really couldn't do that, given that this hippo wasn't about to go anywhere. So instead, he took us on a different route where the water had fallen. The, the water in the Okavanga Delta is seasonal. So, you know, it gets very high, and then it starts to, to lower. And he had to return to camp through these narrow channels where the water had lowered to the point where he actually got out of the boat and pulled it. Um, he walked through the water, the, the channels, and pulled the boat behind us, uh, behind him for a couple of spaces. It was like we were, you know, in the African Queen, and he was Humphrey Bogart. Um, but uh, it was a very memorable experience, and we always show hippos the utmost respect when we're in Africa. They actually kill more people than any other animal in Africa. But um, a more uh, uplifting story uh, is one that happened in Uganda. Uh, we went to Uganda mainly to go on a gorilla trek. Um, gorillas live there in a place called the Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. And there are only about 900 mountain gorillas in the entire world. So um, the whole system is very regulated. You pay for permits in advance for a specific day. 
Um, and we paid for one day as part of our, we were with a tour, um, a group of, um, I guess, eight other people. Uh, and we had a scheduled day to go. The night before, um, I woke up and got very, very sick. I will spare you the terrible details, but by the time that dawn came, um, I knew that I was just not going to be able to go uh, on a gorilla trek. Uh, I, I was barely able to walk out of the room. So we came this far. Mike was, I said to Mike, oh, yes, you go, you go. At least one of us is going to see the gorillas. So we got up very early in the morning, the nine of us in our group that was staying at one lodge, minus Sherry, and we went to the uh, rangers station. This is where we met other people staying at other camps. And there were about 30 people in total that we were just waiting around, just as a large group. And the rangers came in. A lot of people came in. Some were in gray outfits, others were in green, and the ones in the green were the uh, rangers, and we found out later the ones in the gray were our porters. So we stood around for a while, and they gave us uh, our instructions on what to do, what not to do, and then they went around, and kind of like in the Harry Potter series where they had the sorting hat, and they sorted <laughs> the people into their different houses, they went around and just tapped you on your shoulder and told you to go over here and stand, and then went to the next, and, over, and they ended up having about five groups of people out of that 30. And what they were doing is they were sorting us into groups of people to go see different gorilla families, and they sorted you based on what they thought just by looking at us, what our physical skills were, how in shape we were. And I ended up in a group of uh, five of us. There were two, a couple from Belgium, and then three of us from our group. So we had five of us, and we got chosen to go to a family what, that was the furthest out. So what we had was there were two of uh, the uh, people that worked for the parks that were in the green, they were in charge, and one led the group and one was behind the group, and they had machine guns. Now, they told us the machine guns was to uh, scare off the elephants in case the elephants up in the jungle decided to chase us. So we bought that story, okay? <laughs> so each of us had a porter, okay? So there were five porters and then the two guys with the machine guns, and we're heading out to a family that was the furthest out, and we started our trek going up literally the side of a mountain in the rainforest jungle, and it went straight up the mountain using switchbacks, and it was, I mean, it was incredibly steep, and they get, you had uh, poles if you wanted to, but we went up and through the switchbacks, you had a, it was a man in front and a man behind, and they literally pushed us from our asses up this mountain, <laughs> okay? And I am guessing the elevation, the height from where we left up was well over a 2,000-foot rise and many switchbacks running with water, and it was very hard. 
And once we got to off, up to the top of the mountain and the switchbacks, we were at the top in a rainforest that was rather level. We continued to hike, and we had the guys in the front. They had machetes that were literally cutting us a path through the through the rainforest jungle. Okay, they were there was somebody up with the family, so they're in radio contact and were guiding us up this somewhat of a path. And we hiked for about two and a half, three hours, stopping occasionally for water. And finally, we got to a spot where they told us to to stop. And we knew we knew we were getting close. They said we were getting very close, so we, as a group, and the porters were carrying all of our stuff at that point, and I had lots of cameras, very large lenses and everything, so we got them out, and we got into a flat, very jungly area, and the guide told us, the five of us, to stop and don't move. And at that point, we heard a rustling in the jungle at, at foot level, down at our feet, you know, and the jungle was up very high, but you could see rustling of the leaves coming towards us, and he told us to be very, very quiet, and suddenly a silverback gorilla came charging through the, the jungle right to our, right in front of us, literally where you could reach out and touch him and stood up on his back legs and pounded his chest like you see gorillas do, and you could almost smell his breath. It was absolutely the most incredible sight I have ever seen in my entire life. I'm getting goosebumps right now when I tell about it, when I think about it. And we told us to stand still. We stood still. He did his he did his chest bounding, looked at us, went down, turned around and left, and the guide told us that he was just marking his territory and he was the boss. We got that, okay? There was no doubt that he was in charge. From that point on, we had one hour to spend watching the gorillas in this family. This family consisted of 19 gorillas and was amazing. There were seven baby gorillas in this family. And these babies were, some of them, you know, months old and a, a year old, but there were seven babies, and we literally just got to walk around and be with these gorillas for an hour, and it was an amazing sight. And we just watched them. You were quiet. You weren't allowed to use any flash, and they literally just hung around and just, they were gorillas. <laughs> they were baby gorillas climbing trees. It was almost like they were trying to entertain us, the babies. They literally were climbing vines and doing somersaults, and it was like they were putting on a show for us. <laughs> so we spent our hour, when the time was up, boom, done, and we turned around and we returned and did our hike two and a half hours back down the mountain and was uh, a lot harder going down than going up because of the incline and slipping, but we made it down, and it was, you know, about a, probably about a six-hour total trip with the hike up, spending a time, and the hike back down, and again, one of the most incredible experiences of my entire life. So, while Mike is having this just amazing experience, um, I'm still at camp, getting sicker and sicker. Uh, one of the camp stewards is, is taking care of me, 
but when uh, Mike and the guides returned, uh, they sort of assessed my condition and decided that I needed to get to some treatment. And uh, just by the luck, uh, I guess, of chance, uh, in Buendi, uh, near the forest, um, there was a, there's a hospital that was actually built for the Batwa pygmy population that was displaced when the uh, national park was created. And it was built by international contributions. Now, it's not a fancy hospital by American standards, but it uh, had doctors and nurses and um, medical equipment. And the doctor there um, diagnosed that I had sepsis. Uh, and he immediately put me on IV antibiotics for about an hour or so. And uh, then uh, they discharged me back to the tent um, along with uh, some antibiotics uh, for me to take for the next 10 days or so. Uh, but, you know, uh, that, at that point I was so sick that I wasn't even upset about not seeing the gorillas. And me, I was, I was very worried, very, very worried. I thought we might have to... Uh fly Sherry back to Entebbe and unfortunately use our MedJet Assist membership that we use when we go on these trips. But fortunately, we didn't have to do that. Um, antibiotics are a wonderful thing. Um, by the next morning, I did feel well enough to continue with the safari. Um, and I also, at that point, felt well enough to be really devastated by the fact that we had come thousands, literally thousands of miles, uh, to see these gorillas with a one-day chance, and um, this illness of mine had blown my chance to see the gorillas. So the next morning, we woke up our whole group of ten people, and uh, we left. We left the lodge and went down to our two safari vehicles that were waiting for us, along with our guides. And our one guide, Edward, came up to me while we were waiting by the car and motioned me to come with him quickly with Sherry and walking down the road with him about 20 feet down the road. And we came to a little opening on the road, and out, you could see in the road this little opening had bamboo growing to it along it, very huge clumps that were 20, 25 feet tall. And you could see the bamboo swaying back and forth, movement in it, and out of the bamboo walked a silverback gorilla and two other females, and one of the females had a little baby standing on its back. So I couldn't believe that I was going to actually have a chance to see gorillas in the wild. Maybe not for a whole hour. It was just a few minutes that we were able to stand there. Um, but the gorilla stopped the silverback. You know, once again, the guy in charge of this family, he stopped and gave uh, Mike and me and Edward a long look. Uh, then he turned away. I guess he was comfortable and started trudging up the hill. And then the rest of the, the family followed him. 
and I have to admit, perhaps it was because of my weakened con- medical condition, but I just burst into tears. It was not her weakened condition because everybody burst into tears. They were so happy that Sherry got to see the gorillas. So, um, we could go on for hours with our stories of African safaris, but we're at the end of our allotted time. Um, I want to thank Mike for uh, joining me to relive a few of our African memories, and you've never gotten to hear all the specifics of the real gorilla interaction without him being here. Um, I also want to thank all you listeners who've tuned in to the entire African Adventure series of limited podcasts. And if you haven't listened to all six, it's not too late. Um, The first one with publicist Kim Lehman, um, we focused more on my book, Dead on the Delta. The second, um, I described a typical day on safari for those of you who are thinking about that big adventure. Um, Lion researcher Robin Kotke joined me via telephone from Botswana on the third episode. She helped me with research for Dead on the Delta over there in Botswana. Um, The fourth episode was all about poaching. Uh, And the fifth episode, um, Don Roebuck from the local Central Penn AAA uh, travel agency joined me and gave some tips for taking a safari. So this episode number six is a wrap for the podcast series. It was limited to six and now it's done. But let me leave you, as I have on each of the podcasts, with a quote about Africa. This one is from Brian Jackman, who said, Africa changes you forever, like nowhere else on earth. Once you have been there, you will never be the same. With that, Mike and I leave you. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.